When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to the Jill on Money Coronavirus Market Update. It is Sunday, August 23rd, and we are rebroadcasting an interview that we conducted with David Epstein last year. We aired the first part yesterday where we talked about the benefits of being a generalist. Today, we're going to discuss how being a generalist versus a specialist can translate into your professional career, and maybe why being a zigzagger in your career or your life isn't such a bad thing. Here's our interview with David Epstein. Talk a little bit about how the generalization versus specialization, how that now translates into career. Because, you know, we have, I I am much older than you are, but when I was brought up, it was sort of like, go get a liberal arts education, figure out what you want to do. And you might fart around a little bit and go one way or go to the other way, zigzag, whatever. And now it seems that we are asking our younger generation of, you know, let's say Gen Z or whoever comes next to find specialization, like go to code camp, Mm -hmm. become a coder. What is the problem with that model and what is the advantage of more of the generalists? Let's just call it like, you know, there was a guy who wrote a book in in praise of the liberal arts education. So give us both sides of that. Yeah. And I actually decided to, that was Fareed Zakaria's book. And, and. I decided to proactively stay away from that because I didn't want to prescribe a certain course, but rather that just people people should be broad. And one of the main advantages, not that there's anything wrong with coding at all, one of the most important advantages has to do with what economists call match quality, which is the degree of fit between your interests, your abilities, and the work that you do. And that turns out to be incredibly important for your long-term motivation and for your productivity. And so, for example, one of the economists in the book decided to study specialization timing in colleges in different countries. And looking at some countries where students have to specialize earlier and some countries where students can experiment a little bit in college. or so, and, and some of those countries have very similar, otherwise have similar education systems like England and Scotland where in England they, students kind of mid or late high school have to decide what they're going to be doing in college. In Scotland they can keep experimenting. And he said, who wins this trade-off? The early specializers or the late specializers? And it turned out it was the late specializers. In fact, the early specializers do jump out to an income lead when they graduate because they have more sort of specific skills. The later specializers who sample different things end up optimizing their match quality more, doing better, picking a better fit. By six years out, they have caught and then surpassed the early specializers in income Mm. while the early specializers start quitting their careers in much higher numbers because basically they had to choose so early that they made many more wrong choices. So I kind of liken it to if we thought about careers the way we think about dating, and and we spend as much time with our careers probably, maybe more, we would stop telling people that it's a good idea to like pick something early and and stick with it. Because as we know, once you get a little more data and learn a little more about the world, you can match yourself a lot better. So I'm a zigzagger, Mm -hmm. and um, I'm wondering, is there any way that we can figure out how to find that match quality and, yeah. and 
or is it just you have to do a bunch of things? So I, I think there's some of both. It, it for sure is not as tidy a prescription as pick a thing and just do 10,000 hours. Right. That's why this topic of career searching and matching is like the one topic that gets two chapters in the book. While it's not an easy prescription, one of the, the quotes that most stuck in my head is from a woman named Herminia Ibarra, a teacher of London Business School who studies how people find good matches. What she said is, we learn who we are in, in practice, not in theory. And that, that's not just an adage she made up. She, this is based on a, a huge amount of psychology research that shows that we are actually not very good at simply introspecting without experience about what we are good at and what we will like. What she means by we learn in practice, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory, is that there's this huge complex of uh, career gurus and and personality tests. Uh, some of them very famous that say, "Take this test and we'll tell you who you are." But the psychology research shows very clearly that who you think you are right now and your insight into your abilities and interests is constrained by your roster of previous experiences, and that you have to try things and then reflect on them. It's called self-regulatory learning. And then you do that and zigzag more and more and more and more. And that's how you find match quality. And her findings are exactly borne out by the so-called Dark Horse Project at Harvard, where researchers, again, were studying how people find careers. And in this case, they were focused not only on success, but also on fulfillment. They didn't say, here's my long-term goal I'm sticking to. They said, here's who I am right now. Here are my skills and my interests. Here are the opportunities in front of me. Here's what I'm going to try. And maybe a year from now, I'll change because I will have learned more about myself. And, and if you don't do that, it's like what investor Paul Graham says if you just pick a long-term goal and stick, it's what computer scientists call premature optimization. And, and I liked that analogy. Isn't it more acceptable in this era to jump around into career and jobs? It's much more prevalent, isn't it? It's totally. I mean, and in fact, I think it's more prevalent even starting with the late baby boomers. So Bureau of Labor Statistics data shows that starting with the late, the very late baby boomers is sort of when this more itinerant career stuff started. And that that cohort had about, 12 job, different jobs on average from ages 18, 18 to 50. And now it's now it's even more so, right? And so there's something else I mentioned in the book that's relevant to this called the end of history illusion, the psychology finding that, that shows that we all realize when we're asked, have we changed a lot in the past? We say, yes, of course, on all these experiences. But will we change a lot in the future? No, not that much, right? And we're always wrong. We always change more than we think. And so when we're, you're asking people to like pick their lifelong career, it's asking them to pick for a person they don't yet know and a world they can't yet conceive. And so there is very little chance that they're going to optimize their match quality if that's what they do. And if you are going to give advice to somebody who is looking at optimizing match quality, it would just, it would in fact be try, don't worry. If you quote unquote fail or you get bounced out of a job or you hate it, you get another job. But the one word I would also add to that is reflect because this characteristic of these so-called self-regulatory learners who do, over time, get more insight into themselves and more accurately assess their own strengths and weaknesses the way that, that sort of their own managers do, they take a little time to reflect on those experiences. They make sure to have some insight into it and to use it for the lessons. I mean, for me, like I was, I was trained to be a geologist in grad school, right? And I started to realize, okay, A, that I was getting way more narrow than I wanted to be, mm. you know? So I started to get insight in myself and say, am I the type of person who wants to spend my whole life learning? one thing new to the world or much shorter spans of time learning things new to me and translating them and that my advantage over the other scientists all had to do with like communication and writing and wanting to read outside my domain. I started my career because my dad was a trader on the floor of the American Stock Exchange. My godfather was a trader on the New York Stock Exchange, which meant that in high school and summer and college summers, that's what I would do. And so, of course, that's what I did. I remember so like crystal clear memory that I built the the proof of the thesis, like 
Jill should become a trader. And I built the proof to support this idea. Then I got there. I didn't really like it. I was kind of miserable. And so then I left the trading floor and I went into financial planning, investment management. Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of dopey jobs along the way, but, <laughs> but, you know, they were fun, you know, and, and I learned, I did learn a lot. One was horrible and one was fun. I remember then saying, okay, well now, uh, you know, I'm in my late twenties and, uh, I, I have to get serious. And so I'm going to pick a career called financial planning, investment management. And I did that for a number of years and I thought, this is it. This is my life. But what I really learned and as I now reflecting on it, those were great jobs for as long as I had them. But there were aspects of it that were terrible for me and for my personality. They really didn't match, which, you know, I was over involved. I got too emotional. I got worried when people didn't take my advice. I couldn't sleep at night because I thought like, oh, my God, David didn't buy enough enough life insurance and he's not buying enough. And now I'm worried. And what happens? And, and all of that was just not a good match because I was so hyper about it. But I know that if you asked me 20 years ago, is this the career for your life? I would have said, absolutely. Let me tell you all the reasons why. So what can we do to kind of help people pick their heads up a little bit and reflect more in real time? Is it possible? I think it is. And, and by the way, I doubt if you asked you 20 years ago, you would have said, oh, podcasting. Right. right. That's because you just don't know what's going to be there. But I bet you took a lot of those lessons. Right. Because now the very lifeblood of what you're doing has to do with like diverse interests and being able to ask. I mean, look at me. I'm I'm probably an unusual guest for the things you're looking at, but you can still engage with these ideas in ways that are totally relevant to you and your listeners. Um, and so I think the reflection in real time is absolutely real. And the other thing I think is that we should not consider those, those experiences where you thought something was going to be your career mm-hmm. and it isn't to be bad because you will use that knowledge. It's not a sunk cost. All right, let's go back to one um, last question that I have because you brought up Mark Zuckerberg. I guess that, that that I have like this this strain of anxiety around a lot of these the young guys who build these companies and they think they're so powerful and they want to you know move fast and break crap. It worries me that they are not zigzaggers because they come to these organizations that they are now mammoths mm-hmm. and do they have the skill set to run it in a world that's so much more complicated than they could ever conceive? Yes. This gets to a really, like one of the underlying themes of range that I think is a tremendous problem for society at large, which is that when Mark or whoever does what he does, it seems to lead to this assumption that because he figured out the algorithm for a social media site, that he has somehow figured out the master algorithm of life and can do anything else without having to be interested in other things. And I think this also gets the difference between generalists and dilettantes again. The generalists I'm describing in this book are people who are genuinely interested in many different things. Whereas what I see, perceive in a lot of these younger tech founders is they learned how to make a website work. Therefore, other things are just systems. They can make those other things work. We see this a lot in medicine where when Mark Zuckerberg said we're going to cure all disease within 100 years, one of the interventions he mentioned as being groundbreaking was cardiac stents where you, you open up the blood vessels and, and, and can save people's life during a heart attack. But it's much more commonly used when someone has stable chest pain basically because they have chest pain, they have a narrowed artery, you prop it open, how could that not work? And it turns out a dozen randomized controlled trials have show, shown it does not work. What you care about is those people having heart attacks or strokes or dying, and it turns out they have heart attacks and strokes and die at the exact same rate just with a more one more open blood vessel. It isn't a website. We didn't design the human body. It's much more complex. There's all this interacting stuff. And so I think this sort of lack of curiosity and other things that because you had this big success and all these people around you, I'm sure 
you know, become sort of yes people, um, that you don't have to have a curiosity or a holistic view of things. And I think that's really, really dangerous that we allow people to have success in one area, often in a, in a kind environment maybe, and assume that somehow they've just figured out the code to life and it translates yeah, everywhere like, else. like I'm going to throw $100 million at the Newark school system and fix it. Yeah. How'd that work? Money was one piece of a much more complex problem there. And so I think it was naive to assume that that's what was going to fix the problem. And if you looked at that, like there are a lot of places where money is not the problem and there's still school system issues. So I think that was a, a lack of appreciating historical context. Another part of range deals with people who are, let's say, specialists yeah. and their ability to maybe look at uh, what could happen in the future. And they they do kind of sell themselves all the time. I get pitched like, well, you know, Joe can come on your show or Joanne can come on your show and she'll tell you where the market's going next. Yeah. Tell me about that. So this is the topic of chapter 10, this political and economic prediction. And unfortunately, it's probably a pretty good heuristic that if they're getting pitched to you, they probably are not good forecasters. They may have made a good prediction in the past, right? But there's not good accountability for all their bad predictions. Chapter 10 follows a 20-year study where a psychologist looked at expert predictions about geopolitical and economic phenomena. He had to get 82,000 concrete predictions, specific probabilities with end dates, because you have to separate luck from skill, you know, streaks, so you need lots of predictions. And what he found was that there was basically an inverse relationship between confidence and in many cases credentials and, and forecasting ability. So the worst forecasters, what he called the hedgehogs, were people who had spent their entire career working on basically one problem and began to see every issue through that one lens. And so no matter what they were predicting, and they had so much information in that narrow lens or that narrow area that they could fit any story anytime to their to their theory. And they were such bad predictors that they got worse as they accumulated <laughs> credentials. And not only that, when you make a prediction and it turns out wrong repeatedly, you're supposed to update those beliefs. You know, it's this Bayesian thinking for people who are familiar with that. The worst specialists, the most narrow specialists, would update in the wrong direction, where when they would get stuff wrong, they would reinforce their previous beliefs that sent them wrong. They would always just say, I was just wrong by a little, or the timeline was just off, right? This is what a lot of investment yes. is. Like, I was right, the timeline was just right. off. Right, I told you the tech stocks were going to sell off, but you told me three years before they actually did. If the timeline is off, you are wrong when it comes to these sorts of things, and you're not accountable. Thanks so much for listening. If you have a financial question, just send us an email. It's askjill at jillonmoney.com ask jill at jillonmoney.com our music is composed by joel goodman mark talercio is our executive producer we are distributed by cadence 13 don't forget to wash your hands wear your masks maintain your physical distancing and do something nice for somebody today we'll talk to you tomorrow 